Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I'm Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier approach on Let's Go podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have walked back into a sort of espionage, a sort of drama, sort of thriller, sort of jumbled mess. But it is people in suits in boardrooms. Jumbled mess? Of genre. Jumbled mess of genre. Very, it's very John Le Carr. Mm. Very Tinker Tailor soldier spy. Yeah. It's a lot of people in suits uh, talking to each other in raised voices in boardrooms. And also incredibly witty. Uh, we, of course, watched the movie Page 8. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? So I went to the cinemas this week and I saw The Creator. Um, it's a science fiction war film directed by Gareth Evans, no, Gareth Edwards, rather. Um, and it's set in late 2070. Uh, the West has been in a 15-year war with AI after an apparent accidental nuclear bombing of Los Angeles caused by AI. Um, Asia has sided with the robots, though, and uh, there's uh, now been this prolonged conflict going on across the globe. Special ops guy Josh Taylor, played by Josh David Washington, is working for the Americans, um, and he goes undercover looking for the uh, creator of these AI, basically, the, the mastermind who keeps generating you know, new robots and creating new robots. But uh, while he's undercover, he falls in love with Maya, played by Gemma Chan, and she becomes pregnant with his child, but then is later uh, apparently killed during a raid um, and after his cover is blown. So uh, years later, he is approached by military brass with evidence that Maya is actually still alive um, and that she is connected to a new AI weapon that has the potential to wipe out uh, the West's forces. So he journeys into Asia to find her and locate the weapon. But when he does, he discovers that it's a robot child named Alfie, played by Madeline Univoyles. This was really, really disappointing. Um, it thinks it's profound. It really isn't. Uh, the AI take has really misread the room. <laughs> um, it's it's fascinating, actually, in terms of just, I suppose, from an, a timing perspective, because this is a, a movie that was filmed a while ago and, you know, it's got it had a fairly intensive post-production process because of the special effects involved. And in that time, the view that the general public has on AI and the imminence of AI <laughs> has changed considerably. Uh, and it, it really does go in a direction that I don't think many people are uh, interested in hearing at this juncture. Um, but uh, it, that it's not just that. It's that the direction they go in about, you know, oh, the AIs are just really nice and it's the humans that are the bad people. That's just shallow and isn't interrogated much regardless um the story is entirely predictable we've seen versions of it so many times before i i do appreciate the casual bloodthirstiness that it has going for it um it is very much a war movie in that these characters sort of enter and exit the film um at you know in 20 minute chunks basically like someone will turn up and they'll play an important role and then they'll just be just randomly killed uh, in a in a battle sequence, and they do have a talented cast, but they have so little to do. Um, it it is fun to see Alison Janney get to do action as this sort of like uh, hard edged military commander, 
but other than that, the cast is is fairly unimpressive. Aside from Madeline Univoyles, who is the newcomer playing the little robot girl, and she is actually really brilliant. She gets a ton of mileage out of the material, and she gets the closest that this movie ever comes to uh, emotional stakes, actual real emotional stakes for the audience. Um, the script is all over the place, though. I mean, I, when I left the theatre in the elevator on the way down out of the theatre, um, there were a bunch of other people that had seen the movie and they were all talking about specific lines um, in the uh, in the movie and laughing at them because of how bad they were. <laughs> um, and that's never what you want. It's visually spectacular, though. The designs are brilliant. The design of this sort of future technology is brilliant without being overambitious to the point that it just looks like Star Wars. Um, and... Th- the way that you know these robots are constructed and exist within the space, like the motion capture or however they did that, is extremely well done. Um, and the the action is very strong as well. It overloads on spectacle, but it's really really entertaining spectacle. And the score by Hans Zimmer is uh, a a big blowout. Like it's great, but you know I. <sighs> For all of the potential that the the trailers for this had, um, it's disappointing to see it faceplant so completely, really. Or not faceplant so completely, but to see it squander so much of its potential. Um, And that's the thing. For for a new science fiction IP that 20th Century Studios really rolled the dice on and gave a big budget to, uh, to see it, you know, go belly up like this is... You know, that's unfortunate. That's very unfortunate. And you, you sort of see the the studio itself realising that it it's a misjudgment along the way. Because if you see all of the billboards and stuff that have been around the city, it's all stuff like, you know, really leaning into the kind of Terminator stuff, basically. The kind of like AI is the threat thing. Mm. When really this movie is this entirely different thing. It's It seems like the studio has realised that it has not risen to meet this particular moment. Mm. Um, but uh, but that's a, 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 an interesting thing in its own right. I just think, you know, as a, as a visual spectacle, you know, if you ever have the opportunity to put this on, uh, on a 4K screen, like, go for it. I mean, the sound design as well is extraordinary. Like, but it really does, I think, prove to me, after Rogue One and Andor and this, that Tony Gilroy was responsible for the stuff in Rogue One that I really liked. <laughs> um, Gareth Edwards is a great visual filmmaker, but keep him away from the screenplay, please. Because I've seen, I saw his his first movie as well, Monster or Monsters. I can't remember if it was it had a plural on the end, but um, that was similarly thought it was about something when it really wasn't. The other movie I've seen this week has been Apollo 18. Uh, at home it's a found footage science fiction horror movie yep. directed by gonzalo lopez gallego and of course uh history buffs would know that the apollo program shut down after apollo 17 but uh this movie tells you the real story and uh that real story apparently includes a team of astronauts Ben, played by Warren Christie, Nate, played by Lloyd Owen, and John, played by Ryan Robbins, uh, secretly sent back up to the moon, uh, supposedly to collect samples of, of moon rock. But uh, 
when they land, they find a Russian lander already up there. Uh, only the pilot of it is dead, and there are also rock monsters running around. Yep, as you do. This is a really artless and uninteresting paranormal activity knockoff. I mean, it, it's shocking how misguided it is. It it tries to do alien only with the did something move in the background angle from paranormal activity and things like that, but it shows the least intimidating threat you could possibly imagine. Um, no one is scared of pebbles that come to life and scutter around the place like beetles. Like We saw those just... little fun guys from Pirates of the Caribbean, The World's End. Those can't be your horror monster. No, yeah. uh, hearing about pebbles rolling about just reminds me of the trolls from Frozen. Yeah. Because they're rocks. It kind of reminded me that there's the scarab in the Brendan Fraser mummy. That's about yeah, the yeah. closest. Um, but, you know, to sustain a full movie, no. And, look, it would have been better as a traditional movie. The found footage conceit is hugely restrictive um, in terms of how it presents the story because the characters are, are virtually indistinguishable from each other thanks to the uh, costuming. Um, also, partly due to the fact that they're all incredibly bland, but it would have been easier to keep track of a lot of the footage if uh, it hadn't been in the found footage format because it really does do a lot of, you know, the worst parts of found footage, the the difficult to tell where you are and how fast the camera's moving and what angle it is that you're seeing. Yeah. But it rolls through all of the usual found footage motions at a very slow clip. It, it's less than 90 minutes long, but it feels longer. And it's just boring, you know, and that's the worst thing a movie can be is boring. It can be bad, but it can't be boring. And... Because nothing happens here. There's no character drama. There's no scares. There are four alternate endings on the Blu-ray disc, which would seem to confirm that they had no idea what they were doing. Mm. Um, I will say that the effects hold up decently. I mean, that is the thing that found footage always gives you is the ability to mask flaws uh, in your um, CGI budget which this does fairly well. But, you know, for a for a, a monster movie about, with that premise, it should have been a lot more entertaining. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Generally, the best of the found footage movies that we have watched, your uh, Blair Witch Project, Paranormal Activities, uh, Cloverfield, and then, of course, Wreck and its sequel, they use the format to their advantage, not just in a practical sense, but in a storytelling sense, too. This is functionally a part of the story and mm. it really works in that regard but what it sounds like for this one they did it because it was popular and because it was cheap i think mm. i mean there's an episode of doctor who the new doctor who uh one of the ones from the david tennant run called midnight and it's about this sort of tour bus on um a recently sort of popularized barren planet that's made of diamonds and the tour bus breaks down and it becomes clear that there's something out there. And it's all just like it was it was done basically to save money so that the big finale of the season could have more money spent on it. So it's all just from the interior of the tour bus. And it's just this, you know, really dynamite premise because, you know, mm. you can't go outside because it's a it's a complete vacuum out there. It's space. It's going to kill you. And it's just this pressure cooker of all these characters and that's what this could have been if done mm. well but it wasn't 
you know? Yeah. Never mind the fact that this was a Weinstein joint, and apparently Bob Weinstein kept trying to insist in the press maintaining the fiction that this was actual found footage uh, and not actors at all. Nobody's which... bought that since the Blair Witch Project, guys. <laughs> Barely yeah. even then. But, like, the Blair Witch Project is one thing because they're just in the middle of the woods. Yeah. And you don't see anything. Yeah. This movie is takes place in space and has CGI rock monsters. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, come on. There was that story about Cannibal Holocaust where the director actually had to get the actors to say, no, 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 we're alive, because part of the fiction of it was that those characters would die, and he asked them to not sign on any projects for a specific amount of time to keep the illusion, but he actually uh, was starting to get... He was forced to break the case. He was forced to break the, the fiction of it because they were accusing him of, of murder. Yeah, like he that he was actually within the court system. He had to get people yeah. back, or he was going yeah. to prison. Like yeah. it got it got quite far down the rabbit hole. <laughs> too far, yeah. too like far a, for comfort. Like a, he he told the story in a documentary that the reason he realized he needed to get these people back now was because they were so far into pursuing this that um he actually was asked to show a recording of Cannibal Holocaust to the judge, and the judge was horrified and clearly thought it was real. That's when mm. he started reaching out to the actors. Yeah. Mm. Personally, I wouldn't have let it get quite that far. I think that that... Well, it's great. It's great promotion for your movie. True. I think that that uh, Shudder series, Cursed Films, um, yeah. did an episode on that whole they thing did. in uh, season two. Anyways, um, that's me done for the week. I do have some piss takes, but uh, we'll we'll say see what you guys have been watching first. So we've watched a few things. Uh, some new shows have started up for us, but we watched a movie, or Mum, Dad, and myself watched a movie while Holly was at work. It is Dreamhouse. Soon after moving into their seemingly idyllic new home, Willa Tenton, played by Daniel Craig, and his wife Libby, played by Rachel Weisz, learn of a brutal crime committed against former residents of the dwelling. With the locals acting strangely and a hooded figure stalking the family, can Will protect his wife and daughters from whatever is haunting their dream house? So, Harley didn't really see any of this other than the ending. <laughs> I, so, I saw the ending, I have virtually to nothing have to say. On it. Like, I've been pretty quiet all episode thus far. I have nothing to say about this one in particular. It's quite well done. This movie's quite well done, but you can see that it's been heard in the edit. Everyone who was involved with this film has said that the studio really cut this one up, and you can see it. But there were good performances here, particularly Daniel Craig and Rachel Weisz, who actually met each other on this film and would later get married. And Craig has gone on to say that he actually he doesn't like this movie, but he thanks it for helping him meet his wife, which is lovely. But the way the film is put together is somewhat disappointing, because it has a lot of ideas. The film starts promising, with a fairy tale vibe to the music, and with a really interesting energy. But it doesn't stick to the film as much as I would have liked. The film does go places, which I appreciate, but it seems unwilling to really go for the throat by the end. But it's not bad, though. You can somewhat tell where the film is going, but... There's a specific point where you really see a good performance by Daniel Craig, where his character is trying to keep it together, which shows that when he's not forced to play Bond, that he can 
really just fall into these other characters really, really well. There was a reason he was cast as Bond in the first place. That's because he's a fantastic actor, even with a fairly middling script like he's given in this. Uh, so, we also went to the cinemas this week. We have one movie to talk about from there, and we've also started another series. But first, I would like to discuss Saw 10, branded as Saw X. It is directed by Kevin Grutert, who has done several Saw movies in the past, and several other assorted horror movies with a sort of grindhouse sensibility. A sick and desperate John Kramer, played by Tobin Bell, travels to Mexico for a risky and experimental medical procedure in hopes of a miracle cure for his brain cancer, only to discover that the entire operation was a fraudulent scam in an attempt to defraud the most vulnerable. Armed with a newfound purpose, John, also known as the Jigsaw Killer, returns to his work, accompanied by his apprentice, Amanda, played by Shawnee Smith, turning the tables on the con artists in his signature visceral way through a series of ingenious and terrifying traps. I love how the whole of the Saw movie post-Saw 3 has been them, like, openly regretting killing off Jigsaw. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like it's, it's, a, it's a great moment in number three, don't get me wrong, but they have attempted so hard to work, walk it back as yeah. hard as humanly possible. Holy crap, this has an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. And yeah. there's a reason for that. This is actually quite good. Strangely, and it's sort of the opposite swing from Exorcist the Believer, which has been critically not well received. So we are in the fucking Twilight Zone at this point. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, every, with the exception of Exorcist 3, every Exorcist movie since the first one has been not well received. That's, yeah. that's true, even though I will die on the Dominion Hill, and I think that's actually a really excellent film. But on the topic of Saw 10... This is quite good. There's a sense of artistry here that hasn't hasn't really been in the Saw franchise for a while. And this is focusing on John Kramer as a person, as a character. And you get to spend a lot of time with him. You get to see his ethos and see his absolute desperation to the point where there are moments you have to remind yourself, oh no, this guy puts people in jigsaw traps. So you can't feel too bad for him, but at the same time, you're seeing the struggle he's going through. The characters are really where this film is interesting, particularly with, as I said, John Kramer, but also the people who have defrauded and scammed all of these dying people, and how the philosophy of Jigsaw comes into conflict with these incredibly unethical people. And you're seeing a very personal thing from Jigsaw this time, and that goes to the traps they are all about medical procedures and extracting those pounds of flesh from people in the way that these frauds have said that they've excised the cancer from these dying individuals so you get a lot of stuff around that topic this is shot really well they use mexico city as a location and it's filmed beautifully even though it has a yellow filter when it comes to the scenes in Mexico, and it's like, come on, guys. It's visually of a piece with previous Saw movies. It is, but it's in terms of color grading. quite well. And yeah, the traps are fucking brutal in this, this one. They really go for it. There were a couple moments where even I, a particularly bloodthirsty viewer, had to step back and say, you know what? Nah. Which is 
what I appreciate, because a lot of the Saw movies just go way too over the top into cartoon, but all of these seemed very real. And it's all in the one room. So you're seeing these individuals all getting tortured in front of each other, which again is also uh, a twist when it comes to certain Saw films. But I, I quite enjoyed this. It's still a Saw movie. It still has a lot of that torture porn. It still has all of those things that a lot of viewers will not like about a Saw film, including the fact that it's the prequel to the sequel to the prequel. And that's just what the Saw franchise has become now. But this is actually a really good time and is, I think, maybe just on quality terms, the best Saw film, just out of all of them in terms of pure filmmaking. Yep. So, I had a wonderful time with Saw 10. I'm a big fan of the entire franchise. I've mentioned this before when we did our episode on the first Saw. I've enjoyed pretty much every movie from the Saw franchise to a degree. Uh, it's my type of... What do you call it? Soap opera? Uh, it's very yeah. complicated storytelling. It's long-term storytelling. Everything is interconnected in some stupid way or another. The and fact Saw that 10... things are things are being forced to fit together like <laughs> jigsaw pieces from completely separate puzzles. Yeah, and Saw Ten is no different. However, the difference here is in the previous Saw movies, Spiral included, we've had someone caught in the traps as the protagonist or some cop investigating the killings. No, not this time around. John Kramer himself is our protagonist. We spend the vast majority of our time with him. In fact, it's not until, I'd have to say, halfway through where we actually get into the room with all the people strung up and trapped in their specific traps. Yeah. This is most of the time a chance to spend time with John. And that gives us time to spend time with Tobin Bell, who is phenomenal here. He has been great the entire franchise, and this is... He doesn't miss a step. He, he has it down 100%. And the time we get to spend with John Kramer, the human being, really puts into contrast what he's like as Jigsaw. Mm. Um, also, I do have to put some credit on Shawnee Smith here. Uh, she's not given that much to do, um, but it is nice to see how they work together on a trap, on these traps, on this whole project. Uh, you get a little bit of references to later films and stuff like that. It is very much set between one and two, uh, and they make a lot of really interesting choices based on that. You get a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff about how these traps work and mm. the pace that these things need to do and yeah. the specific choices of who needs to go <laughs> next in order to get, I guess, the best effect. Yeah, uh, but I have to detract points for Shawnee Smith's terrible wig. Yeah, it's not good. It is actively bad. <laughs> like, it's the worst wig I've seen in anything for a very, very long time. Uh, but the people caught in the traps this time around, uh, the vast majority of them are your standard sore kind of victims. Uh, people caught in a bad situation, trying to make the best of what they've got, having been manipulated by the person actually running the whole deal. Uh... Which leads us to our sort of antagonist this time around. Uh, Cecilia Peterson, the doctor who scams all these people out of their money. I do not how to say this uh, first name. Uh, I believe she's a Swedish actress. Uh, Snurve Makodi Lund. 
she's great and has this really interesting chemistry with Tobin Bell. Mm. Because there's something very sharp about both of them. Um, Both of them operate really as a syringe with their different but not opposite tracts that they've gone on. Uh, Both John Kramer and Cecilia Peterson are not good people. And they get a lot of work out of that. Uh, I have to give very much, I have to give a lot of credit to one of the first traps we see in the movie. Probably the second trap, the the pipe bombs on the arms. Mm. That one's a great trap. And we're back to the era of having traps that can actually be escaped. Uh, it's yeah. not a spiral situation. It's not a jigsaw situation. Nor is it any of Hoffman's sort of inescapable choice based stuff where you have to sacrifice one life to save your own. This is back to OG Jigsaw stuff. Exacting the pound of flesh, but you can survive and get through it if you, you know, pay attention to the timer you give it. Um, but again, this is John Kramer's movie. This is Tobin Bell's movie. He is fantastic. There's a great rendition of Hello Zep at the end. You get those little twists and stuff that you always get in a Jigsaw movie. Um, no, I had a really, really great time with this. It's sequel based. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which which is which is insane to wild. me. Which is nuts because I can imagine sort of I can imagine them doing a movie set between two and three now. Yeah. Uh, because this this slides into two quite nicely. And Turbin I feel Bell like isn't getting any younger, and he doesn't look any younger. No. So it is absolutely. Wild, and they don't even try to make him look younger. No, this is uh, a pretty. I, yeah. uh, this is a pretty low budget project. Uh, last I checked. Um, let's have a look. Budget was uh thirteen million. million. Which is which pretty is, comparable to all of the other saws, if not more. Yeah, but it's pretty low in comparison to a lot of the other stuff coming out. Yeah. Um. So saw has always been able to use its budget incredibly well. Uh, some of the gore here is a bit silly. Uh, it's not laughable or Halloween special effects that you'd find at, like, a Halloween store. But the budget is used well, and I think because it's been incredibly successful thus far, uh, both critically and commercially, we're getting a Saw 11, and I would love it to be focusing on John again in the period between 2 and 3. Because, obviously, after 3, you can't get much more with him. Uh... But yeah, it was a it was a really great time. Really, really enjoyed it. Probably my second favorite because I got a lot of love for number two. Uh, we also watched it, started up a series that came onto Amazon Prime in the past week. Gen V from the world of the boys comes Gen V, which explores the training of the first new generation of superheroes to know about Compound V and that their powers were injected into them rather than being God given. Uh, set in the University of Godolkin University, these young competitive heroes put their physical and moral boundaries to the test, competing for the school's highly coveted top ranking. They quickly come to learn that ambition comes with sacrifice, and the difference between right and wrong is not as clear as they once believed. When the university's dark secrets come to light, uh, student, some of the students must come to grips with what type of heroes they are going to become. Uh... We have Justin Clare as Marie Moreau, Chance Perdomo as Andre, Lucy Broadway as Emma, also known as Cricket, uh, London Thor, Derek Liu, uh, both are playing Jordan Lee, and Maddie Phillips as 
Kate Dunlap. Sean, why don't you share your short thing about Gen V? I've really enjoyed the first three episodes of this. It keeps up with the very brutal form of satire that the boys has. It's focusing a lot on these new soups, these new heroes who are being taught how to talk to the press, taught how to act. They've been taught how to get on social media and build a following, something that I reckon this podcast could use, but they do a good job at making it seem like, no, they're not becoming superheroes. They're becoming influencers. They're becoming actors, celebrities. And it's less about saving people, and it's more about the PR and the, yeah, the PR of the entire thing. And that's what you're getting a lot of confrontation with these younger characters about. What kind of person do they want to be? And the strain that it puts on them, which allows us to focus on themes such as self-harm and addiction, as well as eating disorders with certain characters. And they're done in these very good ways, and they're handled very well. I enjoy the cast here, they're all quite strong, and you got Clancy Brown as the dean of good old no, university. No, he's not the dean, he is the head of the crime-fighting tract. Yeah, yeah, sorry. And he's he's. it's always fun to see Clancy Brown show up. I've just really enjoyed this, I can't wait to see the direction it goes, because it's got the same wit and the same biting critiques of the Hollywood system and fame and power and corporations that the original run of the boys has. So I'm looking forward to seeing the direction this show goes in and how it ties into the next season of the mainline boys show. Yep. So I have been loving Gen V. I love the boys TV show. I think it's a massive improvement over what I consider to be pretty terrible comics. Um, and this spinoff is really, really great. Gen V is a concept, and Godolkin University as a concept in the original source material, was always a play on the X-Men. Uh, what happens when you dedicate a school not only to beings with superpowers, but also use it to create, essentially, superheroes? And how does that work within what the boys' TV show has adapted... Uh, Vort and the Seven into. Um, and that's really, really cool. Uh, there's something so chilling about the fact that all of these students are not only being trained in terms of their combat ability, their egos are being stroked. They are being taught to become celebrities, influencers, and really the worst versions of themselves. Because obviously Vort has a major stake in this new generation of heroes. Because, you know, the previous generation are dropping like flies at this point. Um, but one of the things that really chilled me to my bones is realizing, holy shit, there are truly so many people with powers in that world. Yeah. And if what, hap if what I know happens in the book happens in the show, this is not going to be a great situation for anybody else uh, who yeah. doesn't have powers. Or even some of the people with powers who stand up against what I think is going to happen. It's also chilling to just see these posters of members of the seven who we yeah. know are absolutely abhorrent people statues of people who have murdered children in in a educational setting in a high school yeah essentially because like and there's yeah 
they dedicate each of the specific tracks you can go on to to uh, specific members of the Seven. So there's the Lamplighter School of Crime Fighting. You've got the Queen Maeve School of Dramatic Arts. It's this whole sort of skewing of not only the the tract-based education methods, uh, but also ideas of like ranking students, not only in private, but also publicly. Like there's they a public these, leaderboard. They have these public leaderboards, these screens, which say who is at the top, and it only has the top five, but... It's it, all about building competition between the people, and it's in a very toxic public way. Yeah, because what they're doing at the school is teaching people to be egotistical monsters. Yeah. And that's only going to fuel that sort of resentment towards one another. And really, there's something incredibly broken in that world. Uh, I love some of the characters we've been introduced to. Uh, Lizzie Broadway as Little Cricket is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, she has the power to sort of, like, shrink um, Chance Potomo, which John and I, who John and I recognize from uh, his time on the Sabrina TV show. The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, not the old yes, Melissa Joan Hart Sabrina. Um, Jess and Claire, also from Sabrina. Um, and we get uh, bits and pieces from Patrick Schwarzenegger as the character Golden Boy, uh, son of, obviously, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he's really, really good for what we get of him, too. Yeah. Um, this is a great show. The practical effects look fantastic in terms of, like, the gore and the blood and stuff. All of that's better than ever. The visual effects are really, really strong, too. It it looks like they've really cottoned on to what they want to, the the perspective of shrinking down to minuscule size to look like. Yeah. Um, they've really nailed that on a TV budget, which is incredibly difficult to do. I've seen a lot of other TV shows really struggle with that concept, and the boys have worked their way around it over the previous, let's say, experiments. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which have always been not only funny, but also really distressing. Yeah. Um, it's no less disturbing. It's no less funny. This is the boys firing on all cylinders. Yeah. And it just happens to be doing so in a spinoff. Um, this one's going to be incredibly important to the fourth season, I believe. And I just think it's great. I'm super pumped to see where they take not only this story, but how it ties into the next season. And mm. as you said, with the theories about what's going to be happening in that next season, where this all seems to be moving to the climax of the narrative overall, I'm pumped to see yeah. how this goes. Because, like... A lot of people would sort of expect that the big fan of superhero comics that I am, and the big fan of, in general, superhero media that I am, that I would be partially offended by what the show has been doing, no, what both because... shows are doing. But no, it just turned around and actually did it better than a lot of other stuff is doing it. It's and critiquing it... superhero media, but more than that, it is critiquing corporations. Just corporate media in general. Corporate media, fame... And, the lying that goes into running a corporation. And the thing is, I love the superhero stuff. I'm aware it's got faults. Yeah. And and I'm aware that there's a lot of, like, bullshit that comes in with it. And that's what makes both the boys' TV show and uh, Diabolical, those animated shorts, yep. and Gen V so good, is that it's smart. Yeah. It, it's got an intelligence behind its eyes that... The original books, I guess, simply didn't have or simply weren't interested in having. Um, yeah. Like, 
Because those were much too disturbing for their own good. They uh, aimed to shock, but they it was without any kind of wit. It was without any mm. purpose to it. These shows actually have a point to shock people. Because yeah. yeah. a lot of the stuff we see here is really shocking. There's some stuff that's burned into my mind I'll never unsee. Yeah, that's <laughs> but true. the books weren't smart about it. They were quite juvenile, if I have to be frank. Uh, it's the same sort of problem I had with the first bunch of Castlevania TV series. Um, there's something juvenile about it that I just couldn't latch onto. But this is great. Gen V is fantastic. I think you'd have a great time when you get to the series, Lawson. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who's not seen any of the books, you're probably going to have a better time. Because <laughs> um, I always have to compare it back. Um, but yeah, this is really, really strong. Strong performances from everyone involved. Uh Love seeing Clancy Brown and stuff. Uh, just really, really strong. And all the connections back to the broader series, too, are really, really nice. Uh, you get little people popping up uh, from time to time for little cameos and stuff. Uh, Chance Crawford shows up as the Deep again, and he's always great. He's firing on all cylinders every time as the as this pathetic Aquaman ripoff. He's great. Um, yeah, so that's what we've seen within the week. Lawson, you have two... I do indeed. Uh, to start off with, uh, I have finished another book. It is the fifth book in the Tomorrow series, Burning for Revenge. Like the others, it is a young adult thriller novel written by John Marston. Uh, and in it, uh, anyone who's been listening to my book reports will know that this is, you know, someone's invaded Australia and these teenagers are trying to survive. Well, Ellie and Co are now on their own again after a brief team-up with some New Zealand soldiers in the last book. and But now the, the teens decide to make their biggest strike yet, but in doing so, wind up kicking a hornet's nest and really increasing the amount of attention on them. This is more hit than miss, but you, you can feel the table setting. It does feel like um, Marsden is raring into gear for the finale of the story. We are coming into the close of this now. Uh, there's only two more books left. Um, and uh, you can feel that he is putting some things in place, uh, that some of it is is functional. But broadly speaking, it's separated into two parts, and it actually is opposite to the way um, most other uh, books, most other Tomorrow books even, would structure them that the, the, the first half is the very action heavy half it's the attack that they amount that they mount um and then the second half is a much more sort of smaller grittier survival thing as really all hell rains down on them after uh how the attack goes um but it really has gone into a very big kind of field in terms of its set pieces and in terms of its action it's no longer the you know let's blow up a a single small traffic bridge with a a petrol tank um that ended the first book that was the big explosive thing well no this is so many more orders of magnitude um bigger this is the kind of thing that has its own wikipedia page uh 20 years later like it has its own name (laughs) um Hmm this particular strike. So uh, it leans into the war violence a lot more than it has been. It's more graphic 
in terms of the stuff that it uh it talks about happening and it is more matter of fact in the manner in which the characters carry out some of those actions um and it leans into that and the trauma that comes out of that and i think it's it's gotten to the point where it's actually weaving a very uh interesting story about you know lost youth and all of that stuff and really the death of innocence which it, it was from the start but i do think that in the first few books marsden had a tendency to really draw a lot of false equivalencies and whataboutisms between the invaders and what the characters were doing which was okay at the start because it was prompting a sort of you know a an analysis of why Australia might be invaded and Australia's place as this very rich country surrounded by countries that are not nearly as rich, that we don't do a lot to help. But as the book went on and you really started to see the stuff that Marsden depicted the invaders as doing, drawing an equivalency or a, or a moral equivalency between the invaders and the teenage characters became more and more hard for me to swallow to the point where I was actively rejecting it um, by, I think, the third or fourth book. Here, though, he's mostly dropped it. Um, it's got much more of a you know thoughtful and a lighter touch to the way it approaches those issues. And that really does come through the second half a lot more. It's a lot more composed than the first half. It's a lot more contemplative. It's maybe a little too long. But uh, it really does lean into character development, which is the part of this book that I welcome the most. Uh, they're really cracking at this point. They're coming up on a year that this has been going on. And they're starting to have nervous breakdowns. They're starting to have, you know, real actual like mental trauma that they have to deal with. And um, the finale gives a huge boost to that character development and the direction it's going to take these characters it's not a finale a big explosive finale that you know changes everything or anything that it's it's a much smaller thing where the stakes are really almost entirely personal and really uh that is something that i think that the books have been missing for a little while is a, is a way to sort of tackle the personal and the, the the way that these characters feel and the way that they feel about each other, the teen angst combined with the war stuff, like that's some of the most interesting stuff in those first two books. And I feel like they'd really gotten away with that. Marsden had gotten away from that for a little while, but it's it's come roaring back at the end here. I hope he keeps it up in the sixth book. But as I say, the end feels in sight by the time you reach the end of this novel. It is really approaching the end game, and uh, I have only two books left, so uh, I shall report back soon. My other piss take is another stage show that I went to go and see, The Music Man, which is a stage musical uh, written by Meredith Wilson, um, and it is set in the 1912 American Midwest. Uh, a con man... Uh, named Harold Hill, played by uh, David West in this iteration, comes to River City, Iowa to start a band, a youth band, but not really. He's embezzling all of the money that he says is going to ordering instruments and uh, ordering uniforms and such, and he plans to skip town before the uh, townspeople can realise that fact. Um, but he comes up against a suspicious piano teacher, uh, Marion Peru, 
played in this uh, production by Amy Winner and starts falling for her and actually starts to have a positive effect on the town, especially on the youth of the town, who he sort of inadvertently starts to give more confidence. Um, this is a production by Savoyards, who I talked about a while ago that, about their 42nd Street production. They are community theatre, but as close to professional as you can really get while still being community theatre, is the way I put it back then. Uh, and this is, is very much the same. It's very, very talented actors, uh, very, very talented musicians and singers, and uh, they put on a very good show. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, the Music Man. It's very old-fashioned. Uh, it's got that sort of old-school song-and-dance musical, that real old-timey 50s, 60s vibe. Uh, the drama and pathos of modern stuff is really not a concern here. This is just sweet and simple. Um, but the, the thing that really makes the story of The Music Man stand out is the character of Hill. He's a real scene-stealer. He's this fast-talking charming guy incredibly manipulative and very good at it he's actually the um the basis for the uh, character in the simpsons episodes about the the monorail the oh the yeah the monorail dude yeah, the yeah. hustler that comes to uh springfield to convince him to build a monorail Olsenville and north haverbrook and yeah. by god i put the them names the langley lyle langley lyle langley yeah it's we're like, making it a short exactly layover that, like into North Haverbrook. Wait. That Simpsons episode is an explicit parody of The Music Man. <laughs> and like it's right such down a good to, episode. Right down to the costuming of that character and the style of musical number that they do with the, the monorail bit. But um, Mar Marion is a decent foil as well. I, I do think their relationship is problematic by today's standards. He really goes after her way too much after she's already expressed disinterest. Uh, for anyone to be comfortable with in 2023. But um, the whole production has a, a satirical, mildly absurdist hu sense of humour to it as well. It's it's making fun of, you know, sort of small-minded people who are easily led and sort of parochially minded, the kind of people that would burn book uh, that would ban books from their local library, that kind of person. Um, but uh, the music is extremely well done. Uh, as well it's super catchy i mean the the standout song here the most famous one is uh you got trouble um which is uh, a number that has very much influenced a whole lot of other pieces of uh, musical theater but also just re is referenced constantly elsewhere um it's got this very rapid mile a minute patter that is was very well performed by the cast which were very very talented. Uh, West is particularly good. Winner is very strong. And uh, you also get a, a very solid Warren James as the grumpy mayor of the town who doesn't trust Hill. Um, there's some there's some rough edges in some of the really supporting, supporting performances. But, you know, that's the charm of community theatre. Uh, and I will say that, you know, Savoyers really need to sort out their sound problems. They have... I don't know what is even causing it, but sometimes like the microphones will just turn off and on while the actors are on stage. And it, it was worse this time than it was last time. It did happen last time as well, but it happened more this time. They've mm. got to sort it out because it's, it's really a problem for them. 
Yeah. But um, yeah, that's me done for the week with my piss takes. Have you guys got piss takes? No. In that case, why don't we move on to play now the trailer for page eight. There's an awful lot of stuff going on, as you'd expect in the present climate. An awful lot of traffic. This country's under threat. It's under serious threat. I've called the two of you together. I want to share a source. You're going to want to talk to me when you've read it properly. I was hoping you could help me with an inquiry. She's called Nancy Pierpan. It's very strange that I've never seen you before. Do you live on your own? What's going on? Nothing's going on. My life was changed when my brother was killed. You need a word, urgently. The death has been announced of Benedict Barron, the Director General of MI5. Why do you imagine Benedict gave me the file? Dad, a man came to see me. He said they're looking for you. Why did he show it around? Why did he do that? Do you know the source? Do you trust the source? What's the file? Are you going to show it to me? He wanted everything out in the open. Johnny, you need to watch out. All other copies of the file have been returned. I want yours back within 12 hours. It's the girl, isn't it? You're doing this for the girl. What was his plan then? Bring down the government. You're gonna have to choose sides one day, you know? Remember, people get killed in the middle of the road. That was the trailer for Page 8. It is an espionage thriller directed by David Hare for broadcast on the BBC. And it follows Johnny Warwicker, played by Bill Nye, a middle-aged intelligence analyst with MI5, who lived a solitary personal life adorned with numerous ex-wives and a newly pregnant daughter, Julianne, played by Felicity Jones. He's a small argument away from estrangement from. He spends his days navigating the increasingly Byzantine rabbit warrens of the War on Terror alongside his old college friend, Benedict Barron, played by Michael Gambon, now the Director General of MI5, and the ambitious Jill Tankard, played by Judy Davis, whose personal fealty to Prime Minister Alec Beasley, played by Ray Fiennes, puts her slightly at odds with Warwicker and Barron. Those fault lines are underlined when Barron tables a report by one of his contacts that Warwicker quickly detects contains an explosive implication about Beasley. Buried at the, pot of, buried at the bottom of page 8 is the suggestion that Beasley has been given personal access to information gathered by American intelligence black sites, i.e. the places they torture people, and didn't pass the information on to MI5 separate and apart from the morality of accepting information obtained by torture. This means Beasley tacitly allowed several attacks against Britain to be carried out due to his not alerting the, the intelligence services. The gears of state grind into action to protect Beasley, and when Baron dies of a sudden heart attack, so it appears anyway, Warwicker feels bound by loyalty to his old friend to pursue the report as far as he can. With no patron to cover for him, he's forced to go up against an institution he no longer recognises, one twisted by procedural shortcuts and the scars of years of moral corrosion. As Beasley and Tankard aligned against him, Warwicker must decide what he's willing to sacrifice out of loyalty to an era of spycraft now long dead and buried. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on page 8, why don't you start us off, John? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I enjoyed this to a point. It's very well written. So I could say potentially overwritten. And it is... It keeps me at arm's length quite a bit, which I think is an issue. It gets better as the film goes along. And we've got some really strong performances here from Gambon, Fines, from 
uh, Rachel Weisz, as well as, obviously, Bill Nye. But, again, it, the movie keeps me at arm's length. All right, Harley, you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I wouldn't go too far to say as the movie keeps me at arm's length, but it is a particular sort of movie. Uh, it's very, very wordy. It's very intricately written in terms of its dialogue. Uh, and it's also set apart from a lot of other, well, frankly, spy movies in that no action set pieces. It is very much to do with espionage in a more grounded sense. Uh, but it also plays with that sort of um, old-style espionage versus new-style espionage. It has that dichotomy to it, too, which is interesting as commentary in comparison to other spy movies of the time. Um, I really love this movie. I think it's fascinating. It's really about the war on terror and the world's response to the war on terror, what we were all willing to tacitly allow in the name of hypothetical safety, um, and the way that the intelligence services responded to that, especially in the UK. I mean, there's a lot about the UK's involvement in the war in Iraq um, going on under the surface in this movie. But uh, I think that you're right. It is incredibly overwritten, is I, I think maybe a criticism I wouldn't take, but like it's definitely, and this is me finishing my 30-second thoughts now, we're on to the first topic, but um, it's definitely born out of the fact that David Hare is a playwright. Yeah, oh, yeah. it feels like <laughs> a play. Yeah. And it's to that point where you can see a staged version of this because there aren't a lot of action scenes. There aren't a lot of bits where... There are none. There, there are, are none. no. There are no instances of violence whatsoever. It's just the implication of violence. Yeah. Movement isn't exactly important no. um, in terms of the action. So I also find that interesting in comparison to a lot of the, like I said, the other spy movies of the time. Your, your Bonds, your... All of these other things that look at... The idea of how intelligence is changing. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you can get into the parody space with that with the John English stuff. Mm. Especially the most recent, too. But this is much more grounded. Yeah, yeah, and it tears away some of that gleam that Bond has given the job of spy over the years. I just I want to say, when I was watching this, I kept thinking, you know what I really love about this movie is that it's not James Bond. Yeah. It's the people who taught the theory courses in yeah. James Bond's training. <laughs> like, like yeah. even, none of even these people, these people, like Bill Nye, he's not a field operative. No. He's not running around with a gun or anything. He's an intelligence analyst. He exactly. sits in an office all day. Well, and that's what the vast majority of espionage comes down to and it's in the real world. It's, yeah. it's reading and it's also a lot of what other intelligence services do like if you want to get in the fbi you know who they actually need mathematicians coders people who can look into white collar crime they don't need people to go out there getting into car chases with guns they need someone who can do the digital legwork someone who can do maths that's why it's often referred to as a secret service because they're not doing all these overt stunts and shit like mm. that. And and that's perhaps the film's greatest strength, is that it's focused on the more underrepresented side of espionage. The and, actual espionage. And the the fact, information. Yeah. What I, information actually means. And information here means quite a lot. And it goes into the politics of that as well. Like Whitaker says, he doesn't recognise this 
job anymore because Warwicker. it is Warwicker, sorry. He doesn't recognize it because it is so political now. And, and this not, is something yeah. that I will talk more about next week because this, this is actually the first of a trilogy yes, of movies. I read um, that. It was not designed as one, but it did very, very well for the BBC and got won and got nominated for a bunch of awards. So a couple of years later, they did the Pirates of the Caribbean thing where they made two and three back to back and tried to retroactively turn it into a trilogy. Those two movies are good, but they're not nearly as successful as this first yeah. one because I think um, Hare got a little more taken with the idea of Johnny Warricker, secret agent. Mm. And... They really ventured away from this idea that this was not a guy who had any business being in the field, that this was instead a guy who had worked in Whitehall or somewhere similar his whole career Hmm. and, um, you know, was now only because the uh, situation called for it in the middle of something he never wanted to be in the middle of. And they really got away from that in the second and third movies and made it like that he was this sort of master of disguise and slipping around and evading yeah. capture and all sorts of things. Which, it let's face it, work. let's face it, if the next Bond is Bill Nye, we're not going to complain. I, if the, that would be dope as hell. Bill, Bill Nye would have made a fantastic M yeah. at oh, some point. Yeah. Um, I think he could but, have been a pretty good quartermaster as well. Yeah, yeah. Put, it, put him in a lab coat, frizz off his hair a little bit. He's got the chops for it. But this movie, to my mind, is entirely about the war on terror and more specifically how the West lost it. Yeah. Because that's that's my thesis when it comes to the war on terror, is that we lost it. Because yeah. if you think about what terrorism is supposed to uh, supposed to do in the end run, of make people, you know, jump at shadows, scared of everything, looking Strike over their shoulders, s- sacrificing their own liberty and um, freedoms in sense in pursuit of some vague notion of security, which is not to belittle, obviously, the very important work that a lot of different organizations do to make sure that awful crimes like that aren't perpetrated. But the Patriot Act in America, Mm -hmm. the cameras on every street corner, all of that stuff, the way that personal liberty has been sacrificed at the altar of security, I don't think that, you know, if you'd asked a terrorist in the 90s, you know, what they thought winning looked like, they probably wouldn't think it would look as good as it did, you know, mm-hmm. now. They won. They because just that, won. That, that's the thing. It wasn't about taking over anywhere. The whole idea was about striking at the heart and getting what you can get from that. And that's what this movie is all about. It's about mm. the way that though that dichotomy has definitely in Hare's mind, and, and to the mind, I think, of most people these days, shifted the intelligence services of countries all around the world. The UK, obviously, is the most pertinent to this movie, but it happened in the US as well. Shifted the intelligence services' purviews. They cut corners. They cut moral corners. They used technology to break into people's private spaces in a ways that in ways that it never had been before, mm. um, to Broach and and that then there's the whole torture thing, the broaching of moral boundaries and moral standards that previously and who knows how often they really lived up to this, but previously mm. the idea was that these were the rules that people were supposed to play by. So yeah. we've really over the years seen this corrosion in you know that area of things into a very sort of Orwellian yeah. state of play and in which- the world. 
and that's very interesting about this movie because throughout vast majority of other spy fiction, we've discussed this sort of ad yeah. nauseum. There's this idea of it's a as a very sort of exciting thing. It's the special cars. It's the fight scenes. But like the one of the biggest wham lines here is right at the bottom of page eight that Downing Street was aware. Yeah, like that. That's bigger that, than any explosion. That hits you really hard. Yeah. The moment you hear it, it's like, oh, shit. That, that's sort of then, when my ears perked up and it was like, oh, fuck. Then when Warwicker that- says that Warwicker and his mate, this is obviously surprise to them. And that's a massive, massive problem. And th- this is something that I think the sequels do do well. If there's one reason to watch the sequels, it's to see what they do with the character of Alec Beasley. Mm. Because they really contextualize him, not in a way that lets him off the hook, but in a way that is, is David Hare presenting what feels like a very sort of believable version of a politician who has convinced himself that the ends justify the means. Because in that bit where he's doing a speech he gives lip service to liberal values and i don't know if that's like in the same sense as the liberal party here but he does seem to be well at that point it looks like he's making a joke uh i don't know if i'd agree with that harley but like whether it's capital l liberal or small l liberal i mean there is Mm. the first time we're introduced to him in the third book it's with a biography of uh, margaret thatcher on his nightstand so who knows but mm. I think he's very clearly meant to be modelled, at least in part, on Tony Blair. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, they reference this special relationship. <laughs> Almost constantly. Like, and that's that's part of it, too. The Americans are doing it, and the characters say, we've been under no illusions that the Americans haven't been torturing people. Mm. Like, I think this is a very open secret at this point, but there's a difference between an open secret and... and proof. It's not just that. It's not just having proof. Is there's what you accept as what's occurring as sort of like a given, and there's then there's accepting it on a institutional level. Mm. There's there's knowledge, and then there's knowledge. And that's something that the like that's the really the thing that Hare thinks about Beasley is that this is mm. a guy who uh, believes wholeheartedly that what he does is necessary to protect the UK. Like, mm. this is not some, you know, this isn't uh, Blofeld, Inspector, no, no. you know? This is actually a guy who thinks that the world has changed, and so now he needs to, uh, you know, hold his nose and change with it yeah. if he's going to actually do his job. And And if that comes down to, in this movie, not acting on certain information that he might have received in an effort to stay close to the Americans and Mm. be in on the ground floor on a lot of the intelligence that they get. That's something that he can justify to himself. And I think it's also critiquing just the the Secret Services themselves, the fact that the paper gets given to multiple people, but Warwicka and Gambon are the only people who actually read the thing. Yeah. And, like, when they say to the Home Secretary... Look at the bottom of page eight. Mm. It's like, oh, so she skimmed it, but she didn't really read it. She looked at it, but she didn't read it. Because the horrifying stuff is in the detail. Exactly. And 
it really goes into the fact that it is an institutional failing. Yeah. Mm. That that's it's the a thing. bunch of people so worked up about their own position that they have missed the fine print. And that's the thing that separates this movie out from the other movies we've talked about that have that whole analog spy in a digital age mm. kind of thing, is that that was very much about um, the push-pull between the field agent of the past in a technological world. Yeah. Yeah. It's James Bond driving his cars, firing his guns, versus hackers and, you know, whether... It's that it, AI know. stuff in the most recent Mission Impossible. It's the... Exactly. It's the... Whereas... Yeah, it's the young agent versus the old agent and Johnny English. That's not what this movie is about. Mm. This movie is about the institution. It's about the analog institution transforming itself to react to the digital world and in doing so losing its sense of moral guidance, its moral yeah. compass, at least in in the view that Hare is given. And that these mm. people that we see left over, you know, Nye, um Gambon, they're the old guard. They're the people mm. who have been there a long time and they're the people who came up during the Cold War. So they're coming from a very different view of what the intelligence services are and mm. should be. Well, it's not just that. There's also the idea of... Homeland security, as it exists in the United States, as opposed to how the intelligence communities in Britain were operating. The way that it looks like Beasley is talking is he's bringing intelligence, the intelligence community into Downing Street to yes. answer directly to the prime minister, yes. as opposed to the... Because prime minister is a political appointment. So anything that a prime minister or even president does has an inherently political action to it. Not saying that Secret Service and intelligence communities don't have politics. They obviously would, as they are people. But there is an intent behind it, a separation uh, from party. They're public servants versus elected people. Yeah, exactly. And that's something they talk about with the... Uh, it's not Secretary of Defense, is it? Home um, Secretary. The Home Secretary. Home Secretary that's yeah. what they talk about the Home Secretary as well. She's a political appointee, and by the end, we see that she can get bought with the deputy prime ministership, mm -hmm. and it, it's it's part of that as well. It's separating intelligence from politics, because in politics, the information that you want to hear is the information you want to hear, not the information that is actually true, whereas in, in, in the intelligence service, you can't seek out what you want. And it's yeah. also you have to seek a, out what there is. And it's also a story that does try to shine a light on the powerful and the things that they get away with, with the entire plotline with Rachel Weiss and speaking about her character's brother, the fact that he was murdered in cold blood in a protest in the Middle East. And there's the... I think one of the strongest elements of the movie is Nye himself. Yeah. He's an incredible actor. We've spoken about him before. And... It's really great to see him front, front and center in this one. Because we really haven't discussed anything with him where he's been the primary protagonist. Yeah, we talked about Pirates of the Caribbean, obviously. I'm just trying to think what else we might have done an episode on that he is in. Harry Potter, he was Scary Rufus Scrimger in Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, like seeing him walk into the room with Michael Gambon. <laughs> I was like, okay, fuck! Uh, it's the Ministry old... of Def it's the Ministry of Magic. It's like ah, oh, old times. Yeah, we a we actually have um done more than I thought that we have mm. with him. So there's pirates, there's Harry Potter, 
there is um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There's yep. Valkyrie. Um, did we do any? Did we do what do you call it? Um, Hot Fuzz. I don't think we did. No, did we didn't. We? No, I right. don't think we've done any of the Cornetto trilogy. No. I'd like to do World's End. Yeah. Yeah. But nothing with him as primary protagonist. No. A lot no. of, like, villainous turns or side characters. And it's also a different kind of spy. He's an older man. He is, as you said, he's the he's an analyst. He's not trained to get into combat with people. He gets into, like, the closest we get to an action scene is the look on Ray Fine's face that makes you think, oh, he wants to he wants to hit him. But other than that, the closest we get to a chase is him Evading squirreling away from that one inept guy who's trying to follow him. Like, how hard could he be to track, honestly? And Nye is um he has a link with David Hare. They've worked together a lot. Um Nye's done a lot of David Hare's plays over the years. Um and they have a uh, a working relationship that spans a very long time, and he 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 cottons onto the patter incredibly well. Yeah, yeah. Because every and- playwright has a specific rhythm, and Bill Nye felt so natural. It's just every other character doesn't sound like a normal person when they're like using Gambin works this script. Gambin, Gambin works. works. Judy Davis works. Um. I think the Home Secretary works. I think Ray Fiennes works. Really, I think it's when you step outside of the intelligence apparatus and these are supposed yep. to be just normal people. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. when it starts to seem a bit weird. Because like, they're, they're all speaking like, like the smartest person in the room, even when they're just the person. It's like, the person, I think, gets the worst of it is Rachel Weiss. Yeah. Yeah. Like, she's stuck with some pretty difficult material in mm. terms of believability. And... When it comes to Warwick's personal life, it's even sort of naughtier than some of the dialogue. So let me get this perfectly straight. So in that scene where Gambin walks into his office and talks to him, they mention something about sharing a wife. Yes. Now, I thought that was a joke. I thought he was kidding. But no, Michael Gambin's character has married Warwick's ex-wife. Okay, so mm-hmm. Warwick got married pretty young. Uh, to his... I'm just trying to think about the ages. Would he have been young at that point, considering Phil City Jones' age at that time? Um, I don't know, especially. Yeah. I mean, like... Well, it, it, he I walked don't think out while she was pregnant. Yeah. And, and they've got... um, He's got multiple ex-wives. He's got, like, what do they say? Three or four? Three or four. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people start commenting on, are you working on your next one? Um, And when... Warwicker walked out on his pregnant wife, Gambin's character stepped in. Uh, and it seems like he's been kind of the primary father uh, to Warwicker's daughter, that that following amount of time. Mm. Um, and it's very interesting because Warwicker is a very particular guy. Um, there's a level of dispassion just about his person. Yeah, He's not a dispassionate person, but it seems that over time he struggles with emotion. And this is something that I think also is a thing that the sequels irritate me a little bit about, is that in this movie, you really do see that Warwicker would probably prefer not to be doing this if he had his druthers, but he's doing it out of loyalty to Mm. Gambin. He's doing it out of loyalty to his friend. And and because it's right. 
Yes. Well, in the second and third movie, they turn him basically into an ideologue, as someone who's standing on his soapbox. And really, I mean, it's David Hare's proxy within Mm, the story. Because this is a David Hare thing. I mean, David Hare has a... How familiar are you two with him as a playwright? The name is incredibly familiar. I've probably seen his work in the past. Yeah. So he's written, like, dozens and dozens of plays in the UK. He's very well-known, very well-respected. Has also written... Uh, the scripts for some of the uh, sort of awards baity movies of the 2000s, including The Hours and The Reader. Ah, yes. The Reader. I remember The Reader. But he does a lot of plays about institutions and about Mm. institutional change. Even if it's not um, any institution in the traditional sense, it might be a metaphorical institution, like the institution of family. He does a lot with that and about the... uh, the politics within it, the changes within it, the corrosion that he sees within them. And he's returned to this war on terror theme a lot. By the time he made this movie, he had all written, already written, I believe, three plays about the war on terror. So this is 2011. Like, he moved quick. He, mm. uh, he made a, um, a play in 2004 called Stuff Happens, which is basically about the U.S.'s decision to go into Iraq. Um, and uh, he made another play, like, the year... like The next play he made was in 2006, which was The Vertical Hour, which was, again, about the 2003 invasion of Iraq and reflecting on that from a variety of different perspectives, different people. Uh, but um, he's very interested in this as a topic, and I, I think that's mm. something... Because he's an older guy as well. He is 76 now. He was in his late mid to late 60s when he did this uh, this movie. And I think that you can see a lot of a lot of that. That's he chooses that protagonist. He chooses Warwicker mm. as the protagonist. He chooses this as being a very boots on the ground in London hallways and office buildings mm. kind of story. He's not interested in James Bond or in the people out there actually. I shouldn't say he's not interested in the people, but he's is not interested in the action. He's yeah. interested in the people who actually make that action happen. Mm, yeah. And what he sees as an incredible overreach on the behalf of modern politicians and modern security services. And that's something that he draws back to Alec Beasley. I was really interested to hear him talk about the character and the behind-the-scenes information because he's talking about how he thinks that Beasley – and he's again, he's speaking – I think this was for one of the sequels. So he was speaking in 2013, 2014 about he doesn't think that Beasley is a politician that the UK has had yet, but he thinks mm. that he's a prime minister that the UK will have one day. Yeah, that, he's a sort of people are on the pathway to him. Yeah. I will say that in the like given the way that politics not just in the UK but in the world over has gone since these movies have come out, I think it's it is kind of interesting to see that David Hare assumes that this, you know, void in certainty and security will be, he assumes it will be feel, f- filled by people with, with cunning. Instead, it's just been filled <laughs> by morons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's also the fact that Beasley has to function as a character with cleverness. Yeah. And, and, and um, really, we only get one <laughs> scene with him. One yes. scene where he's the main focus of the discussion, and mm-hmm. it is Ray Fiennes just being Ray Fiennes, and it's always great to have him. 
Uh, and the, third, Hev- the third movie is where you get your Ray Fiennes worth. Oh, yeah? Mm. Oh, that's good. Uh, David Hare has worked a lot with Ray Fiennes as well. He just a couple years ago made a 51-minute film, which is basically just a monologue performed by Ray Fiennes playing David Hare. It's called Beat the Devil, and is about uh, the delirium of the illness and the political landscape of the first UK lockdown, and yeah. David Hare's perspective on it. It's about Hare's experience going through COVID in the early mm, days yeah. of COVID. Um, but this was his first time working with Ray Fiennes, and he's also worked together since. His, his first big post-COVID play, not just a monologue, but a post-COVID play, was um, Straight Line Crazy, mm. which is a Ray Fiennes show. But again, if you want to hear about his interest in infrastructure, listen to this. Quote, the play is set in the 1920s through the 1960s in New York City and centers around the life of Robert Moses, once a powerful man in New York and the master builder of infrastructure from new parks and bridges to over 600 miles of expressways. That is, no joke, a fascinating casting. Yeah. The yeah. fact that it, that's Ray Fiennes as Robert Moses. And Robert Moses was... For the people who aren't <laughs> familiar with him, Which he was we not well-liked. No, he, he was thought of as a particularly mean bastard, like, and he railroaded a lot of poor people out of their homes in order to create those roads and highways and that particular infrastructure that kept a lot of disadvantaged people down. Lots of people have cited Robert Moses as one of the most evil men f- in New York. Which is like, come on, like, at that point, you're (laughs) dealing with some of the worst of the worst Mm. in terms of evil people in New York. You see what I mean in terms of the the projects that he's drawn to. He also, um, he's done a lot of other stuff, like, he did, he was on the uh, Rupert Murdoch is a real problem train way before anyone else (laughs) was. Yeah, Um, yeah. maybe people should have been listening to Hair. He wrote a... uh, a play called Pravda as far back as 1985, <laughs> starring Anthony Hopkins as a Richard as a Rupert Murdoch proxy. <laughs> Does he, he do an that... Aussie accent? Do you reckon he, he was? No, that... he he switched it so that he came from South Africa. Okay, yeah. Um, but like, Bill Nye was in that as well. I, I do um, though love the idea of Anthony Hopkins trying to do an Aussie accent and just stumbling into South African and they're like, fuck <laughs> we'll it. We'll, it, we'll just change that, I guess. It's not really that important. But it is interesting he was on that train. He seems very interested in government and the way that government works, like the people who make the decisions within a bureaucracy. Well, it's not just that, it's the processes. Yes, exactly, and I think that's where this movie has a lot of its strengths it's where, when the personal stuff about Warwick's fa- family comes in, where this dialogue starts to feel a bit much. Mm, when yeah. he's outside of the walls of the intelligence industry, and he's, he's talking to his daughter, and his daughter talks like him, and everyone talks like him, to the point where it's like, has everyone been on bit, the fucking like, limitless pill? Yeah, everyone in an Aaron Sorkin show sounds like Aaron Sorkin. Exactly. It's got a bit of that and going on, yeah. That's That was part of my issue with this film, the fact that everyone sounds like exactly the same person, but yeah. they're talking about their separate character developments. My massive bugbear with that kind of 
uh, thing was when Brian Michael Bendis started writing Superman, and he can't write a character who's not a smartass to save his life. So mm. everyone just turns out into some 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 sort of witty asshole. And it's it's the kind of thing that you get with people who are extremely talented writers. Like just listening to the dialogue in this movie. Oh, you can tell it's very well written. But for a lot of these characters, it just doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit with the way that they've been they're being played well, or that their story has been told. It's the it's the difference between theater and the screen. With theater, you can get away with that a lot better, yeah. because it's you're, primarily you're, the the writing that carries yeah. a play. You're at a um, you're at a high level of theatricality on the theater. Exactly, and there's also the aspect of you're a little bit further from the performers. They have to go to the next level, and that's part of it. But you're also if there's a very well-written piece of action happening on a stage and you're in the audience, you're going to leave there, grab a glass of wine from the bar at the... a very highly priced glass of wine at the theatre, and you're going to be talking to your friends thinking, wow, it's a, it's actually a wonder that those performers got through that particularly naughty string of words. There's, there's a sense of, not one-upsmanship, but a sense of, in the same way watching a gymnast do five... Mm. flips in the middle of the air and then landing on their feet there's the sense here is of a, here is a person who's good at their craft exactly yeah. and that's part of the reason why that works in a theater show but in a movie you're seeing different takes different scenes being put together and it just seems like too much it seems like there's too much of mm. the ego of the writer in that work that's an issue with sorkin that's an issue with joss whedon I a lot of the time i wouldn't say ego with whedon obviously ego comes into that i would say is they've gotten so used to writing one way mm. that there's one way they could write yeah that simplicity does not come naturally to people that experience that writing things intricately mm. um, well it's also it also is dependent on what the purpose of the writing is yeah just yeah. because the characters all sound similar doesn't necessarily automatically prompt a you know, a criticism from me. No, it's, I not all, it's not always a bad thing. No. Um, One... For what it's worth, just as another piece of trivia, um, he, Hare has explored, uh, you know, sort of domestic situations before. Like, one of his most famous plays is a play called Skylight, which premiered in 1995 and is about a, um, a younger woman, like a 30-year-old woman from a lower-middle-class um, background who had an affair with a wealthy older restaurateur and years later he like knocks on her door and wants to basically debrief with her <laughs> about their experience and when it and when it um came out that was michael gambon who played that role hell yes. and yeah and then when they did the broadway revival in 20 and west end revival in 2015 that was bill nye who played yeah, that, role. that tracks um, and it was Carrie Mulligan who played the the teacher in the Broadway West End revival. In fact, Ooh. that was actually filmed for um, National Theatre Live. National Theatre Live, yeah. Um, so that's still floating around. And in fact, in fact, a few of Hare's plays have been. Uh, Straight Line Crazy was filmed as well. Um, so there's all of this stuff that makes it makes him, I think, really interesting as an ideas man. Yeah. Yeah. Um. um I what? do. A couple of the scenes I liked a lot were Ewan Bremmer's 
scenes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he rocks. Great character. Fantastic character. I love when he comes back from the Middle East and he's like, oh, so basically she's legit. But at that same point, she did also- you really send me halfway across the world to check up on a potential girlfriend? It's like this guy knows this dude's M.O. <laughs> and he's really interesting as a figure mm. because he's... A guy who used to be very high up in MI5, but then with under um, Gambit's character's coordination, they faked a scandal in which he was caught, quote unquote, selling state secrets so that they could junk him and he would move into uh, the journalism sphere. And so he's now working for, what is it, the Financial Times? Something like that, yeah. And now he acts as... MI5's go-to guy within media. Like, they seed stories with him. He lets them know what he hears. And, but, it's, so f- it's so clever. But the only people who know about it... or the Well, there are multiple people who know about it. Bill Nye knows about it, obviously. But the only person who can actually confirm that that's true, that he wasn't actually guilty of s- selling secrets, is Michael Gambon. And when yeah. Michael Gambon's character dies, he's stranded. Yeah. You know, that he's locked now yeah. out of out of the building, basically. And, like, I love his character because you can tell he's known these guys for a long time. Hmm. They taught him espionage. They, they instructed him on all this stuff and how it worked, and he trusts them, kind of implicitly. Hmm. Like, when and, he hears um, about Gambon and what he found, what he, who his source is, he's like, I may not trust the source, but I do trust him. Uh, Bremner, Nye, and Fiennes are the only three actors who appear in all three films. Yeah. Um, and Bremner just gets increasingly large roles as the uh, the trilogy goes on. That's good. Because he's a really um, good actor. Yeah. But uh, it's... I want to talk a little bit about... I mean, well, for starters, we've already been talking a bit about it, but what an incredible cast. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah, like... That's that's what you get when you've built up this reputation as one of the premier playwrights in modern day UK. You know, yeah. you get Nye, Gambon, Fines. I mean, Judy Davis, Felicity Jones, Ewan Bremner, Alice Krieg, the Borg Queen herself. Um, mm. But Weiss as well. Yeah. And and that's something I want to touch on here is because I think that Rachel Weiss, bless her, I don't need that character in this no, story. No. It's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. It's a complication too far. Um, it's. I get why it's there. I get why Hare is interested in it because that that Warwicker finds himself backed into a corner at the end of the film. He can't really change things. He yeah. can't really repair this system the way that it's fallen into, you know, disrepute. What he can do though is this one good thing. He, he can get can, a little win. He can, he can get a little win, exactly. He can show the truth in this one little corner where it might not have otherwise been shown. And that that is this one little bright spot of, like, no, this is what we should be aiming for. Mm. But It also that, feels like a different play. Yeah, that end point is not worth all of the time we spent building up to it. Yeah. And when they kiss, it's like, that seems like an afterthought. Like, the entire relationship... Yeah. That is, building there just seems unnecessary. Thematically, I get what they're doing. They're trying to show Warwicker the human damage of this kind of secret that is kept. 
the damage that can be done to a family that is on the other side of the inter- an intelligence agency burying something. Yeah. And I get that, but at the same point, she doesn't feel necessary. Well, it's the, because it's a different uh, whole... play. It's a, it's a different play. It's a different movie. Yeah. The whole romance angle is interesting in the sense that, you know, I think that's something that Hare is doing quite carefully and quite cannily mm. in that he... It is. It works in some ways as a semi-parody of the Bond, you know, a different woman at a different, at a different port kind of thing. Yeah. But like, it's actually interrogating that as you know the the end result of the job that he does and the man that he is. That uh, he actually doesn't have a personal life. Anymore. Yeah, he can't create those relationships yeah. because he's had too many secrets. He knows well, not too only- much. Not only that, but I think that there's also something that Hare is doing where he's connecting Warwicker to MI5 itself. That mm. as MI5 has, you know, fallen into uh, a an era of unhappiness on the basis of taking the easy way or um, taking moral shortcuts, that so has Warwicker. Yeah. It's just a different kind of thing. Warwicker's cycled through multiple... Um, multiple wives he's not close to his daughter he has this woman next door who's half his age that he instantly is you know taken with and thinks might want to get with him meanwhile he's carrying on with the home secretary's assistant um and that as mi5 has uh, as as hare presents it lapsed into this you know era of decay of institutional decay so has Warwicker's personal life. That is the institution of family, um, a man with a daughter that he doesn't have a good relationship with, a man with a wife that he can't be loyal to or faithful to, a man with a girlfriend that he can't even be loyal or faithful mm. to when Rachel Weiss comes along. So I think that there is an attempt to draw that, that together there. He also just, in general, has an emotional distance from yeah. others. Um, it's which, because he knows too much. He's yeah. seen too much. He. I do like that one yeah. scene with his secretary. Uh, I think it's quite telling, mm. but it, it tells you a lot about his character, even though it's a small scene. But like when he has his uh, his, his pass revoked, act, his pass revoked, and he's sort of getting angry at it, and she says, "You're not going to throw a wobbly again, are you?" And he <laughs> says, "When's the last time I threw a wobbly?" And she says, seven, seven. And he's like, "Yes." And I didn't throw a wobbly because my pass was revoked. I threw a wobbly because there was a terrorist attack in London and Britons died. You know, and we didn't thought, know it was going to happen. Yeah. Hmm. I think that that's quite telling about his character and about his frustration. He's very at, tightly wound. I mean, there's that same that scene, and I think it's a good line of dialogue that kind of sums up um, Hare's view on things entirely, is when he is first told by his ex-wife that his daughter is pregnant. Hmm. And um, he says, who's the father? And she says, she hasn't told me. And he goes, what? And she says, oh, come on, Johnny, it's the 21st century. And he says, why does everyone keep saying that as if repeating it constantly justifies any act of stupidity? Um, which obviously in the way that he is expressing it there represents a sort of you know socially conservative sort of traditionalism. But more broadly speaking, sums up the movie's whole whole thesis. Just because it's the 21st century doesn't mean we all have an excuse now to just go off our rockers. You yeah. know what I mean? And 
one of the elements that I find very fascinating is it's a small character, the Ralph Wilson character, Tom Hughes. Mm. And he gets introduced to us in the most awkward possible way. It's good to see where you live. But <laughs> that is that is not how you end end that interaction. That's a bad end the to that interaction. The moment he said that I thought I thought, you know what? Maybe get with maybe get with this older dude. Cause clearly the young people have no clue what they're doing. And well, he that's keeps showing up. Well, that's a little cul-de-sac that Hare bakes into it, isn't he? The young radical. Not the young radical that Hare grew up with, you know, the people growing their hair long and wanting to end the Vietnam War, but the young radical who has bought into the authoritarian tilt of mm. the 21st century and now is, like, really on board. He, like, he believes that, you know, this is about civilization itself and... Um, you know, that sort of what we would now almost call an alt-right personality Mm-mm. in terms of, of how far he's willing to go. And, and it's so chilling in that scene where they go to his place and just his body language and his tone of voice is ice cold. Though he says, I probably would have slept with you. It's just like, ugh. This is a guy who looks at people and connection as numbers. Data. Yeah. And, the, and, and there's something so chilling about that. And that's something else that um, the third film delves into with the Felicity Jones character. Um, she, I don't think it's done particularly well. I don't think... I think that Hare has, an, has a hypothesis that he never really gets around to uh, summing up. Mm. But I think it, it is the purpose of it in the third film, and it's the purpose of it here, is sort of that demonstration of... Um, you know, the pursuit of family members, mm. of family members in uh, the rotation or in the, the in reach of all of this stuff getting pulled into mm. what's going on, that that's something he's pursuing. But also, like, the using family members as a point of manipulation or a point, as a weak point to gain leverage. Yeah. It seems, seems to, having watched the, the entire trilogy, somewhat offend Hare's sense of fair play. Mm. And it's revealed that the Tom Hughes character is the son of Judy Davis's character. Mm-hmm. Judy Davis's character, uh, Jill Tankard, has you know has started establishing this alternate intelligence agency. Yep. For and Downing com- Street. And compare and contrast to Nye's relationship to his own child. Yeah. Like that's they're, they're in lockstep. Very very well baked in. Like I yeah. think there's a lot going on here and. Um, that's something that I think that the movie is pretty exceptionally benefited by. Mm. I think the one element of this that I'd like to talk a little bit about more is the Home Secretary, because mm. I think that she's like a, a pretty great, um, <laughs> like little supporting character. This, mm. like, you get it every now and then. You get it with the Ewan Bremner being embedded in the Financial Times, and you you get it with uh, the Home Secretary coming in and being basically. The way to keep her in line is to dangle the deputy prime ministership in front of her. Mm. That this, I you get these little points of Hare's other interests coming in. Yeah, that we're at the moment we're dealing with the intelligence services, but here I'm going to trot in this guy to make a brief comment on the media, and here I'm going to trot in this other person to make a brief comment on political parties. Yeah. And I really, really like that uh, that sequence with her in the boardroom as they're going over 
page eight because you already know from even before that sequence starts that they don't they have a fairly dim view of home secretaries in general the yeah. idea that they like they call them god you know that because they think that they're god basically and they'll you know they'll ask for whatever and they'll get whatever they want the, and, and there's um, that interesting uh piece of dialogue where uh they're discussing who works for who yeah and that's very very interesting as part of that commentary as well but once you get into that room with them it becomes very clear that they're mocking her mm. Uh, they're mocking her position and they're mocking her authority. Gambin especially. Um, Nye plays it much closer to the vest. But uh, that as that sequence goes on, it's almost an exertion of authority and control over the Home Secretary. It's mm. these MI5 blokes coming in and saying, actually, you don't know the whole story. We do. You think you're in control, but you're not. And that's the complete scuttling of her position as you know, as God, essentially, mm. by the end of that st- that scene in that, you know, you know, you're not trusted by, you're not briefed by the person above you and you don't have a leg to stand on. And I mm. think that there is, I don't think it's intentional on Hare's part, but I think it has snuck in there a very traditionalist angle in yeah. terms of old boys club and, uh, you know, the, the, white men in suits cabal yeah. as being the people who run things. Here are Gambin and Nye, these figures from the past, these people who did it back in the day, you know how it should be done. And if only these young, younger firebrands like Ray Fiennes would leave well enough alone. And of course, you know, the, the two female characters who are in the midst of this, uh, you know, government secret service angle that are actually relevant to that part of the story. It's Judy Davis who is deeply connected to Beasley as sort of a a person who's rode up the ranks on his coattails, which is made more obvious in the second and third film. Mm. Um, but then there's the Home Secretary, who it's it's very much established, doesn't really know what's going on and isn't given the information by mm. anyone, be it her boss or the people who supposedly report to her. So there is kind of a feeling I get there of the movie kind of reinforcing a, a traditional sort of perhaps slightly misogynistic mm. um, view of things, not intentionally, but in, a, in yeah. a way that I think has definitely crept in there as sort of a leave the spy work to the men kind of undercurrent. Mm. Yeah, it for sure doesn't feel deliberate, uh, but it feels like it's there, obviously. Um, I do like also in that scene, again, it's back to the idea of knowledge versus knowledge. There's, and that's the main scene where they discuss, oh, we were all, we all seem to be aware that the Americans are extrajudicially torturing people. We all accept that as fact, but we can't actually accept that as fact uh, to the public. And when I said that I, when I said that that wasn't true, at that point, I thought that that was the case, but I'm now... Better informed. Better informed. And... It's that, I it's totally, the, I totally believed there was WMDs in Iraq. I really swear, guys. Like, pinky yeah. swear. It's this sort of weird, Ouroboros, like, circular logic. Um, they talk themselves around into telling the truth as opposed to telling the truth yeah. itself. It, it's a very weird sort of... It's a weird way to lie. Yeah, and that comes down to the whole... 
again, back to that whole thesis of the push-pull between politics and what should just mm. be uh, adherence to the truth. That yeah. if if the spies do the investigating and turn up like turn up stuff that doesn't politically help you, that should not mean that you just then keep poking and poking until you finally get something that you can twist into vaguely resembling something that supports your argument. No, your argument is wrong. All of the evidence has shown you that your argument is wrong, and so now you should probably just uh, take the new information you have and and do the best you can going forward, but that's not how it works. Mm. You know, the truth is scuttled and thrown away and torn apart in service of the political angle. Well, that's the whole war of terror thing. Yeah. Um, a lot of stuff written about the time and a lot of postmodern works, um, there's this discussion of the post-truth world uh, where truth has become something malleable and perspective-driven as opposed to fact-based. And that in itself is very, very fascinating in terms of what this story is trying to say and how Hare writes it. Um, let's talk a little bit about how it's been directed. Um, at the beginning of the movie, uh, there's this, and it's only a little thing, but it really irked both my brother and I. It's that bit where it's just about to start, the jazz kicks in, and it has that, you know that thing in movies where they draw the pencil drawing sort of look of things before the movie actually starts? That didn't work at all, (laughs) either tonally or visually. Because it didn't it, even line up. It gave well. me that. Uh, I was watching it and I thought, "What is this? A spy version of Death at a Funeral? Like, <laughs> what is this?" Because smooth jazz is not what I expected. No, no, no. Not smooth jazz. Jaunty jazz. Yeah, jaunty smooth jazz. <laughs> but the most weird and generic jaunty smooth jazz. Like I don't know. It's- it's so, the clunkiest, most unnecessary part of his he's an old-fashioned guy kind of Yeah, because yeah, as he was strutting down the street and I'm like, is Bill Nye playing a pimp? Like, <laughs> like And I mean, I, was... I kind of, I guess he is because, you know, he, he Warwick of Fox, let's agree. Yeah, but that's not what a pimp does, Sean. Yeah, but you know what they I facilitate mean. The colloquial... The the colloquial <laughs> exactly. use of the word pimp. Like I said, they facilitate the fuck. Yes. But when it began, I was like, I'm sorry, but the thing said spy thriller? And this entire thing feels like a parody of that. Uh, just at the beginning. The start of the movie felt like I was walking into a comedy. Yeah. Which, which is not and, the tone. And then the dialogue at all. And then the dialogue starts, and I'm like, I know this is the right one because. Lawson said it was page eight. Bill Nye, Michael Bill Gambon. Bill Nye, Michael Gambon, and they are there. And when I'm listening to all of this dialogue, I'm like, is Lawson taking the piss? Someone <laughs> has to be taking the piss, like, at some point on it's this movie's path to us. But the moment Gambon hands over the article and the moment they point out, oh, the bottom of page eight, I was like, oh. Okay, that's what this is. What this um, is. I do love Michael Gambon in this one. He is so good. In particular, he's a troll. I love. <laughs> yeah, I love the bit in the elevator. How he just starts talking to him about this shit, and Bill Nye. After they walk out, Bill Nye's like, "Really? In the middle of an elevator ride, you embarrass me like that?" But it, it, well, it's not just that. You learn this later. It's the scene where um where 
Nye confronts Gambit and says, like, why didn't you just tell me about mm. page eight? And Nye, and Gambit says something like, once you get in the habit of being paranoid, it gets very hard to stop. Yeah. And that's what that all was. He was testing whether Warwick is still, mm. you know, the dependable, reliable recruit that he yeah. took out of college all those years ago. He yeah. wanted he's testing to... that he's still Warwicker and he's not gone over the tankard side of doing he things. He wanted to know if he would actually read it and understand what those words meant. He wanted yeah. to know because he said, read this and then talk to me. Because he didn't want to have to say it out loud because he doesn't know who's listening, who he can trust. But this also... He takes the document out of MI6 with him. He takes it to his home. It's just sitting on his desk. Yeah. When he invites Rachel Bison, <laughs> it's like, what the hell, man? You gotta be more careful with state secrets. Again, like, for as as much as Warwicker is <coughs> right to be suspicious of the place that MI5 is. way has too become, casual about all this. He, he too, has. Uh, gotten that kind of like lapse in standards (laughs) yeah Yeah. and like it you mentioned it before but the scene where they talk about chucking or wobbly that's very very funny to me just the way that the secretary (laughs) is just like silly man he's like he's in one of his moods (laughs) it the movie up to the point where warwick points out what's at the bottom of that page it feels like kind of a workplace dramedy Mm. And then after that, it's like, oh no, spy stuff. It's going to be Warwicker pretending he's out of the country. Instead, he's going to go talk to the Prime Minister. Uh, and all of this kind of thing. And Did you recognise the um, the person playing his secretary? No. Uh, Rucky Sakra, who plays Emily Sands in Sex Education. Oh shit. Oh, no. oh shit, that's right. Let me see. Yeah. Oh! Okay. That makes sense. Yes. Yep. Yes. She's one of the teachers in sex education. Damn, it took me a minute. I knew I recognized the face. Yeah. Um, but like... But I, I think all- that, like, that character, I like that she's presented as wearing a hijab. It's, it's a hijab, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's even part of something that Hare's doing there. It's like, in public at this time, all of the politicians are stamping their feet and talking about, you know... Um, Islamic extremism and, you know, all of that really, you know, not even dog whistling, just regular normal whistling in Mm. terms of its racism and bigotry. And here is this person who's very competent and is working for MI5. Like, it doesn't need to be called out and Hare doesn't call it out, but um, it says so much Mm. about, you know, that, again, that collision between what intelligence actually does and what it should do versus the way that politics then mangles the outcome yeah yeah and it's not as though this is an issue that's stopped there's a great deal of shit going on right now to do with not only the storage of state secrets but the distrust between the politicians and the intelligence communities and whether you're allowed to write to-do lists for your assistance on state secrets yeah or also or if you put it in, let's say, a bathroom, an incredibly gaudy bathroom at your, I don't know, Florida resort slash home. Or if Which, you put it by in- its very nature as a hotel is filled with people coming in and out. Okay. <laughs> and here's the thing. They said 
that the bathroom can be locked and that that's why it's okay. Gang, a bathroom locks from the inside. A bathroom <laughs> that locks from the outside is fundamentally useless. <laughs> so, yeah, come on, guys. Good. But there's also the fact of it, like... <laughs> Governments are doing stupid shit like this all the time. Like we've spoken about we've it. We've spoken before. about yeah. the the filing cabinet. The filing and yeah. cabinet. it's that thing of all of these organizations are so massive that fuck ups will happen. It's just a mathematical certainty at this point. God, whenever I think about and the filing cabinet, it it's just so, so good. good. It's so funny <laughs> because they was they started to get really up the journalists for having this material, and it's like, guys, do your jobs and they won't have this material. But part of me also thinks that if this movie was set in the modern day, that information was getting out. Yeah. Oh, page 8 was getting out. There's nothing stopping that getting out. Someone would have accidentally put it into their garbage. It would have ended up no, in no. a tip Somebody, somewhere, and someone would have come across it. Just it. Ends up, uh, it just ends up in a fish and chip shop. Someone has their fish and chips wrapped up in it. It just... What? Ends up in the st- ends up in the stupidest possible. What, they're place. eating their battered cod. They look down and are like, "Oh, oh Downing, Downing Street, Street knew about torture." Okay, interesting. Do you want to know? Okay, so do you want to know the best bit about that filing cabinet thing? Mm. Again, for anyone who didn't listen to that last episode where we talked about this, like uh, the ABC, uh, our national broadcaster in Australia, came into possession of of h- highly secret, top secret documents that was. Uh, found inside of two locked filing cabinets that were sold by Parliament House without being cleaned out. <laughs> um, it's so stupid. So practice but, and the, but the best thing, bit, yeah. One of one of the things that were was in there was the results of an audit showing that the Australian Federal Police lost nearly 400 national security files between <laughs> tw- 2008 and that 2013. That is so good. That compounds on it. <laughs> it like, sort of proves its entire point. Yeah. 195 documents, including plans to protect the United Arab Emirates from Iranian hostilities, <laughs> national security briefs, Afghan war updates, intelligence on Australia's neighbours, profiles of terrorism suspects, and issues around Australian Defence Force operations in Afghanistan, which you got to wonder what that meant, given some of the stuff that's happened recently. <laughs> um, but but, it's just, it's the silliest thing. And God, it's so funny. And it, you've got the nobody's nerfect. The funny thing for me at that point was... I was volunteering at an op shop when that story came out. And I I turned to the people who I was working there with and I said, I guess we have to check every... Let's check every piece of furniture that comes in because you never, you know. never know. You just never know. Um, but at that same point, these are organizations that are so massive, that are so chock full of bureaucracy. It's like fitting. Uh, too many files in a locked filing cabinet, practically, and then giving it away. It's it, it. It gets so choked up, full of information, and everyone trying to do iterations upon iterations of information that things are going to get out. And then, and at the end of the day, in this movie, Warwicker has that information, but he can't really do anything with it. The information about Rachel Wise's brother gets to be released, but it's a small consolation in a situation that doesn't really get rectified. So, I... You mentioned the sequels a couple of times already. Hmm. I, is there any action? 
Does he no. fire a gun? No. There's never any instance of um, on-screen violence in the entire trilogy. Good, good. Because I was kind of worried about that with the way you were describing them. Um, does he wear fun hats? No, not really. Oh, that's a shame. So he does do a sort of master of disguise. It's a turtle oh, kind it's, of It's thing. more like him, you know, putting on sunglasses and walking through a, oh, a train the, station the, or something. It's the, the, the MCU, MCU version of disguise, yeah. wearing a baseball cap and glasses. Yep. <laughs> All right, we've been going on for a while on this, so why don't yep. we uh, wrap up? Hey, you um, had more to say about it than you thought you would. Yeah, yeah. That's what. Co- go- that's All why right, conversation's like, good. Last thing, um, yay or nay on whether Baron really died of a heart attack or not, yes. or whether he I was think, murdered. I think so. I think he did. What do you reckon? Uh, think, unless yeah. it comes, unless it comes out. Well, obviously, it can't come out in a next film because Michael Gambon sadly passed away. Uh, but yeah, I do think his character really did die of a heart attack. Yeah. Well, we can notice that he was having trouble lifting things. He seemed off. Hmm. I reckon that's legit. Yeah, it feels legit. They would have made it more explicit otherwise. Yeah. And the movie uh, wasn't afraid of making things explicit. Now, why don't we move on to the IMDb Parents Guide section? For the uninitiated, the IMDb Parents Guide uh, is when we talk about the prudish and or pervy things to be found at the IMDb Parents Guide for the movie we are talking about this week. Um, only one entry this time in the sex and nudity section. Mentions sexual arousal in a political context. True. Christ. Honestly, I don't, I, e- I don't even know what they're referring to. No, I mean, I don't know how to place that. I'm just going to have to trust them. Um, so now, why don't we move on to our uh, segment? Do we have a name for this segment? You know, the Muppet Page 8, I suppose. You know, where we recast the movie with. Um, the cast of the Muppets and the cast Sesame of the Street. Muppets for the parody of the movie in much the same way we had the Muppet Treasure Island and Muppet Christmas Carol. We've got to come up with something pithy hmm. to... And we, we can dip into Sesame Street, if yes. needs be. Yeah. Um, you so, keep Bill Nye. Yes. But is it incredibly funny to see Kermit doing all of the things that Bill Nye is doing in this movie? Also yes. true. Yes. Okay, for Gambon. He's kind of got Fozzie energy. No, no, he's too much of a troll. Fozzie's a little bit more, you know, basic humor. Right. He doesn't try to do anything securitous. He just sort of says Fozzie's the obvious punchline. Fozzie's not punch nearly... Fozzie's has got no self-confidence. That's the No, problem. not clever enough. Huh. Big Bird. I don't know. I don't know. Bunsen. Nah, I don't see Bunsen for that. Um, Stoutlaw and or Waldorf. Yeah, yeah, that works. <laughs> or both of them. Both, both of them, yeah. <laughs> at once. They have a they simultaneous bo- heart they attack. They both have a heart no, one of them has a heart attack and the other one stabs himself because he can't. He literally can't do it can't himself. Can't without the other. Yeah. Mm. Do you think Statler and Waldorf are actual brothers? I've heard, like, I've heard people's theories that they're a couple. No, I've got it. I've got it. Sam the Eagle. Because he even works as the representation of what Sam the Eagle represents. Yeah. yeah. But at the same point, it's interesting because Sam the Eagle is so obviously meant to be so American. And oh, that's he... never stopped them before. He turns. Oh yeah. Oh, obviously, I know that. But I love the idea of this absolutely British character being played without even an inkling of an accent. All right, Beasley, Uncle Deadly. No, Uncle Deadly's not like. I feel like Pepe the Prawn is because you really like of... putting Pepe the Prawn in there. Well, there's a sort of slickness to him. Mm. You know. Yeah. 
I don't buy that Uncle Deadly could get elected. Oscar the Grouch. Oh, yeah, you're right. Oscar um, the Grouch? Maybe Grover. No, like, there's got to be a charm. There's got to be, like, yeah, a suaveness to it. That's why I'm going to Pepe the Prawn. Yeah. Mm. Rachel Wise. You keep her as uh, human. Yes. Keep okay. her as human. If we're doing, if we're replacing Bill Nye, we yeah have to keep her. Felicity Jones can be human as well. Miss Piggy can be Alice Krieg. Yes. Yep. What about Ewan Bremer's character? I'm Scooter. thinking Gonzo. Oh, Gonzo works. Yes. Yes. Gonzo does. No, work. I like I like Scooter because he seems more of the type. I guess. Like, that he would kind of be... I don't know, he kind well, of looks Uwen like Bram- Ewan Bremmer almost. Ewan Bremmer's character has, a, like, the stinker showbiz no, about if, him. But if you look at uh, Ewan Bremner and you look at a picture of Scooter side by side, they actually don't look dissimilar. They look quite <laughs> similar, in fact. I don't know uh, if that says more about Ewan Bremner or more about Scooter. There aren't that um, many other ca- main characters. The guy who's being followed by is Sweetums. The, the, the Ralph Wilson character. No, no, no. The guy who he dodges no, in the, the Ralph Wilson garage. character is Scooter. Gonzo oh, okay, is... Okay, yeah, fair enough. Bremnu is Gonzo. And then, I don't know, No, the Home Secretary can stay human because we've already used the one female Muppet. <laughs> I suppose she could be Janice. Like, oh, who's the... Um, she has Rocco. She has got, she's got a pet rock. She's a Sesame Street character. Yeah, I know. I think she would fit more in the Felicity Jones role yeah. than... Yeah, yeah. Now that you mention it. Yeah. I think Janice works there. Why yeah. not? I've, Any, there's, and, there's a woman who's introduced as a character in Muppets, The Electric Mayhem. Nah, She's, but she doesn't have the staying power yet. Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, so let's get to our next bit. Uh, um, so now why don't we each go around and say who our MVP for this movie is, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> um, I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie is Bill Nye. Um, I think he's brilliant. He is one of my top three favourite actors. The other two, of course, being John Lithgow and Ian McKellen. Uh, and I think that he does such good work in this uh, this movie. I, I think that he really digs into that, that excellent dialogue. I think that he is just the right blend of, like socially off um like he embodies that so well for what warwicker is supposed to be as this sort of this relic this guy who is so much defined by his job that he's kind of separated from the rest of humanity um and i think that he does you know he's just a really compelling performer he makes that content that uh dialogue that story sing so i'm going with nai in terms of who I would, uh, in terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I am going for the big boardroom scene where um, they really, well, first off, you get a really intriguing look into the relationship between MI5 and the political establishment. Yeah. Um, all of the actors there are just firing on all cylinders. The writing is so good. It's so crackly and has so much going on under it. Uh, and the way that that is where you get the big wham moment of the film where you realize that this is actually something to do with the prime minister and what the prime minister knows. Um, That's all really well. And it also exposes, I think one of the things that we didn't talk about in this movie, which is the dry sense of humor it Mm. can have like that scene at the end where he's sort of been looking over 
the Home Secretary's shoulder for half of the conversation because he spotted one of his daughter's terrifying paintings yeah. on the wall. <laughs> and um, the Home Secretary made some comment about make some comment about it as she as she's left, you know, don't blame me. I didn't choose to buy it, you know, and, and uh, he says, Oh no, it's my daughter painted that. And she goes, Christ, you're in more trouble than I am. (laughs) Which is a pretty good line. There's also those little bits where she's like, what does best friend think? Yeah. Yeah. It's very well written. Um, But uh, in, in terms of who I would recast with this podcast, patron saint character to John Lithgow, I am going to go with hmm I'm torn between I'm torn between uh Beasley and Baron. I think I'm going to go with Beasley because I think that he fits more. He's not he's not quite like Michael Gambon has this very particular sort of crackly dry trollish energy to what mm. he's doing in here. And I don't I think there's just something a little too warm about Lithgow to quite hit yeah. that prickliness. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go with Beasley because I think that Lithgow could, particularly a Lithgow at the age that Ray Fiennes was when he played uh, the role in this movie, could really get that sort of charming populist politician thing going on. And uh, certainly it would be great stuff to see him sitting across the table from Bill Nye having an intense argument, uh, to see him come back for the next two of these movies. Um, I think that he would fit there more than anywhere else. So for me, I'm going to have to give my MVP to, yeah, yeah, Bill Nye. I was about to say hair for a minute, but Bill Nye makes the dialogue sing. Uh, Sometimes, very verbose writing, some actors can really struggle with that. But... Bill Nye doesn't for one minute struggle. He has that rhythm down, he has that patter down, and rhythm is incredibly important to that kind of writing. It has to be very specifically delivered, and Bill Nye is fantastic with that. This is one of our first times discussing Bill Nye in a starring role, Yeah, and so he carries the job of protagonist incredibly well. He's always engaging. Uh, he carries the wit incredibly well, and there is something a little inscrutable about the performance. Like, what does Worker actually believe on, like, a political level? Because he's been so disengaged from that side of things, it makes the character very, very interesting. And I feel that Nye helps make the character even more interesting with the little peculiarities that he brings to the performance, like the little details. Because uh, the devil is in those details. Mm. Um, my favorite scene or sequence, it's that second scene with Uwen Bremner, when they're at that sort of little restaurant really far out of the way, when Bremner's come back from his holiday, quote-unquote, and basically Bill Nye is just explaining to him what's gone down. Not only is that really helpful for people who might not have picked up what was put down earlier on, it also really helps with showing us what kind of character Warwicker is, what his relationships with other people have been in that industry outside of Baron. And Bremner's always great. I always like seeing him when he shows up and stuff. He's in the um, Our Flag Means Death, which we're going to be starting the second season of tonight. And I don't know, they just work together really, really well. They both have that patter, that rhythm, that tete-a-tete down. 
but I do have to say that scene in the boardroom is fantastic as well. It's great stuff. I just like watching really great British actors talking at each other. There's just something so very relaxing about that. Um, who I would be cast with John Lithgow? I agree with Lawson. It was between Baron and Beasley, but I'm leaning towards Beasley here. Uh, not only is there something very, very interesting on a meta sense, getting an American to play a British prime minister who trusts the Americans more than his own uh, intelligence community. That's very interesting. Uh, Lithgow has a very strong uh, British accent. He could do that work incredibly well. I also think that at the age that Ray Fiennes was in this movie, I think he can play that sinister, well-intentioned sort of vibe. Because that's the interesting thing about Beasley. There's more going on there than we're given in this first movie, as you've described it. And also it gets him in all three of them, like Lawson said. So that's a lot of fun, given, giving um, old mate Lithgow more stuff to do. Um, and I love him in a good talking scene. He's a master of using dialogue. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it would work incredibly well. Yeah, I give it my MVP to Bill Nighy. Because he adds such a charisma to the character. He plays the weariness very well. And he makes David... Sorry. He makes David Hare's dialogue sing. Uh, from my favourite scene or sequence, it's that boardroom. Because it's the first time where you see what the stakes of the film really are. You see what the focus is going to be thematically. The fact that it is about the war on terror. The fact that it's about extrajudicial torture, that it's about the kind of people they've been turned into because of the war on terror. And it's a funny scene as well. It has those bits of humour that Lawson talked about. I think it's just generally a really well-written, very well-acted piece of work. And for who I would get John Lithgow as, part of me wants him as Warwicker, but I understand the desire to have him as Beasley because... You don't really want to get rid of Bill Nighy. Plus, this gives us scenes between John Lithgow and Bill Nighy, which I'm pretty sure would make our heads explode. So, I think Beasley is an interesting character for him. And he can play that kind of severe, but thinks he's doing the right thing kind of character. But ends up being, like, really sinister as well. So... Now we're going to put it to a vote, whether or not we're a pro-Page 8 podcast or not. Lawson, why don't you cast your vote first? I'm saying yes. I think that this is a really finely crafted film, very well written, excellently performed, and it's about so much. Uh, I think it is has got a lot to say. Sometimes it says it better than some other times, but in all, I think it's got such valuable contributions to add to uh, really... One of the great tragic stories of the 21st century so far, which is the uh, continuing Rome-esque collapse of uh, Western uh, niceties, civilization, politics, Democracy. however you yeah, however you want to look at it. Um, and so I'm going to go with a, a pro vote on this one. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with Lawson here. It's a pro for me. I'm I was a bit colder on it going in. But this is why we do conversations like this. This is why we discuss these through before we make our final decisions. And I think that this is a whip-smart movie, great dialogue. It is a bit distant from you at times, but when it starts cooking with gas, it really starts cooking. Sorry. 
Performances are all great. I like a lot of what it has to say on the war on terror. The ideas about uh, truth and what does truth mean in a post-truth world. Uh, is it a little bit clunkier with some of the other messages it may have? Yeah. I've not never always been a fan of that sort of like old school versus new school dichotomy in spy fiction, especially the fact it constantly happens. Um, but I think this is really good. We don't get enough espionage thrillers that don't have a single punch thrown, and it worked incredibly well. Also, really strong filmmaking fundamentals. Uh, not a missed uh, shot, I don't think. Really strong work from the director there. I'm a little bit colder on it than Lawson is. I feel like the movie kept me at arm's length for a long time. I really appreciate what it's doing thematically and how high the quality of the work is. I, just on a quality standpoint, I'm a pro for this movie. It's just not really the kind of thing that excites me, that gets my heart pumping. Uh, I can't argue with the quality of the film. There were aspects of it that I think could have been excised to make it a bit leaner, make it work a bit better. And as I said, there, I've had issues with some of the writing, but I think the quality of it stands for itself. Yep, so there you have it. We are a pro PJ podcast. So, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find those at Exit Through the Candy Counter for John My Summon on the Bright Side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about Page 8? What is your favorite movie centered around espionage where there is not a single fight scene? And also, what do you think about Page 8 and its sequels? Uh, how does it rank in terms of a trilogy for you? Uh, you can also like... Rate, comment, share, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind on certain podcast apps you're commenting on the show on the whole, and on others, it is for specific episodes. If you are commenting on the show on the whole, if you are addressing something from a certain episode, do cite what that episode's name and probably number is. It just helps us get through back to it to understand what you're saying. There's like over 200 of these things now. Uh, it's hard to remember every single little thing we've done. But please do like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe. Over the course of the last few weeks, I have talked about... You have talked about. Talked about. Uh, a lot of the details about this robot-run world, but I have been cagey in a lot of the past about the origins of this. And okay. something that has brought been brought to my attention is, how does one build more robot bodies if robot bodies are needed to build the factories that build the robot bodies? Well, obviously, humans would build them first. Exactly. And they would build each uh, other. So, really... The machines didn't build that many more factories other than what actually existed to begin with. Uh, obviously, they would eventually build a couple of them. They would just simply be using the space A lot of space it was just retrofitted. Yeah. They would use the space that already exists more effectively because they're robots. Yeah, like, AI does not functionally exist in its physical world, but its physical manifestations are people-built to begin with. Yeah, but naturally. You know, robots took a lot of those already existing industries over. You know, it's the way around sort of that question. Yeah. So, Lawson, what have we got cooking for next week? Ah, uh, well, next week we'll be doing a, a feel-good film that uh, I'm sure will will hit even, even harder than it would have uh, if we had done it, say, 
as one of the first episodes of this podcast, given what we've all it's been through since. It's pandemic-related, isn't it? It's Contagion. Son it's, of a sick! Uh, the Steven Soderbergh movie Contagion. Uh, it is available for streaming in Australia on Foxtel now, if anybody is interested. It's also available for purchase or rental on the Apple, Amazon, YouTube, Telstra, and Fetch stores. I should have known this one was coming up. I'll be sure to watch it with a bourbon. Because it might hit a little real now. Uh, so join us next week for when we all have terrible flashbacks to our time in lockdown. Instead of jungle drums and monkeys screaming, it's the sound of fax machines spitting out the dust that they've accrued. We'll be talking about the movie Contagion. A Until time when, when coughs started sounding like gunshots. Until uh, then, I've been Harley Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue, to be Sean Lewis. I awake to find no peace of mind I said, how do you live As a fugitive Down here Where I cannot see so clear I said, what do I know Show me the right way to go And the spies came out of the water But you're feeling so bad Cause you know And the spies hide out in every corner But you can't touch them though